Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle, or for anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is Luke chapter 23, verses 33 to 43. It's the basis for the sermon here at the First Free Methodist Church on November 20, 2022. It happens to be Christ the King Sunday, and this particular text from Luke 23 is also the reading for the year C cycle of the lectionary. It is the closing Sunday of the Christian year. This episode in Luke 23 of Jesus hanging on the cross is filled with meaning and significance, dominantly because this is the moment of the crucifixion and death of Jesus. So let's begin with a moment of reflection on the mechanics of the crucifixion that's taking place in this story. The location, uh, as Luke tells it, is the place of the skull. And Luke's description is different from the other three Gospels. They describe it as Golgotha. So the place of the skull might be a a title that many in um, uh, Luke's Greek-speaking world might be um, more knowledgeable about, or at least the language is a little bit more uh, accessible. It's quite likely near the location of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem today, although there's been a lot of scholarly debate about whether or not that's the actual location or not. There was a period of time in which scholars felt it was a completely different location, but there's new scholarship that's beginning to reflect that uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre may not be far at all from the place of the crucifixion and may actually be accurate in uh, its definition of where the crucifixion took place. Now, the process of crucifixion um, is, is graphic. And there are many different sources on how the Romans did this. In all of the Gospels, they don't offer much about the mechanics of the actual crucifixion itself. All the Gospel writers simply say that Jesus was crucified. There are a lot of different modalities about how the Romans did this in the ancient world. Oftentimes, uh, spikes or nails would be driven into the wrists and the heels. Sometimes appendages were tied to the cross rather than being nailed. The whole notion of this was to prolong the agony of crucifixion. Uh, Sometimes on the cross, there was a very small slanted seat that was put upon it so that the person who was crucified uh, could rest their body for a bit, uh, which, again, only prolonged the agony. There were other instances in which the Romans would crucify people upside down. Uh, It goes on and on and on in graphic detail about all the different ways the Romans uh, did this. Jesus, in this case, as we hear in Luke's gospel, was crucified uh, between two criminals, and there was a sign placed over his head. And these signs were uh, not designed to cite the particular criminal code that the one who was crucified had violated. Rather, they were more of a public description of the crime, and sometimes they smacked with irony like this one. Uh, It says that uh, he's the the king of the Jews, uh, is the sign hanging over his head according to Luke's gospel. Uh, Crucifixions were always public and usually near the entrance to a city or a town in the Roman world. So it was clear to everybody who was approaching the city that the Romans were in control of this particular place because they could see the evidence of crucifixion, whether there were actually people hanging on those crosses at the time or whether just the, the crosses themselves were upright, but no one was on them. Also in the story, we hear about how Jesus is offered a, a wine 
uh, the gospel accounts differ in terms of what this is. It, it's typically a bitter drink, and it was sometimes used by Roman soldiers. Uh, there were other times it was mixed with vinegar. Uh, suffice to say that it's a spoiled kind of wine. So in other words, it's a harvesting of grape juice that may not have had any uh, yeast added to it for its fermentation. It just spoiled and kind of began turning toward vinegar. And again, the, the point of this isn't offer just a bitter drink as an insult to those being crucified. It was actually a form of hydration. And it was there for the very same reason all the other mechanics of crucifixion exist, is to prolong the suffering of the person being crucified. What we do know about crucifixion is that the way one would keep oneself alive during the process of the crucifixion would be by continuing to take breath. But as you're in the crucified position, it compresses the lungs and it makes it very difficult to breathe. And so the only way people could really breathe as their body weight hung from their arms was to use their legs to push themselves up slightly so that they could get enough air in their lungs before they would exhale. And so uh, you read the gospel stories about uh, the legs of those being crucified being broken. This is why they would break the legs and so that the prisoner would no longer be able to push themselves up to get breath, get a breath. And so crucifixion uh, is oftentimes understood as just kind of a death by blunt trauma or hemorrhage. That's not actually the case. Uh, crucifixion dominantly uh, took its victims by suffocation because they could not breathe and uh, they were uh, just in agony. It was a horrendous, horrendous way of um, the Romans conveying their power to other people with the power to crucify. So what would be the key passageway here? Well, I, I think uh, in a larger context, crucifixion in some ways is a means to an end, at least within the gospel story. So oftentimes Protestants talk about churches uh, that have Jesus on a cross, in other words, a, a crucifix, versus those with no Jesus on them. And so you can kind of tell what kind of church you're in, whether Jesus is on the cross or he's not. Dominantly in Roman Catholic churches and Eastern Orthodox churches, Jesus is often on a cross. And in Protestant churches, uh, we usually have a cross with no Jesus on it. You see, the centrality of a cross takes a rightful place in Christian worship. And uh, it's most prominently displayed, believe it or not, in the cross. But the cross uh, is experienced dominantly by congregations through the Eucharist or Holy Communion, in which we proclaim this message of Jesus' death and resurrection in the broken bread and in the cup that's poured out. So there's a participatory way. It's a, the cross isn't something we just look at. Somehow the cross is something we participate in uh, when we come and partake in uh, Holy Communion. What we find in crucifixion is um, that the, the wrath of God is not poured out on Jesus. Um, I feel very strongly in my uh, notion of rejecting this idea of substitutionary atonement that Jesus takes our place on the cross and all of God's anger and wrath towards sin are poured out upon him. I, I reject that notion of the atonement. When instead I find for me that's much more meaningful and powerful is the wrath of human beings being poured out upon Jesus. And that wrath that human beings can dispense is when we're confronted with our sin. Sin and the cross are entwined. And so the mystery of the cross is that resurrection requires it. Victory over death happens only through death. So what's central for us is the full emptying of Jesus in his death. 
the emptying that began in his incarnation and the nativity stories, the Christmas stories, comes to its fullness as Jesus dies on the cross. We can read about this notion of being emptied uh, even in death in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, in which the incarnation is complete. That's what being fully human is all about. Uh, there's a death that we all suffer and that we all undergo, but we find resurrection in Jesus. So this death of Jesus then is no martyr's death. It is a salvation unfolding before us. The cross is the enormous capacity of God's love to be revealed in the very flesh of Jesus. It is ultimately about sacrifice. Here we find four distinct groups, though, gathered at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion. There were people who stood by, and they're largely silent throughout the entire story. Then there's another group that's there, and those are the rulers. And uh, when the rulers saw Jesus hanging on the cross, they sneered at him. It's a unique Greek word that's used there for for a form of disdain or ridicule. Um, And yet it's a different word than what the soldiers are going to use in a moment. And these rulers function under the assumption that the Messiah of the Jewish people could never undergo such a fate. In other words, they deride Jesus as a Messiah figure because no Messiah would be crucified by the Romans. And so they say he saved others, but he cannot save himself. It never even crosses the rulers' minds as they see Jesus crucified that this is not a question of capacity. Can Jesus save himself? But it's a matter of will. Shall Jesus choose to save himself? That's an important nuance that the rulers seem to miss as they sneer at him. Another group gathered there are the Roman soldiers who've actually just uh, crucified Jesus. They've, they've committed the act themselves. And it says that they ridiculed Jesus, a completely different word from the description of how the rulers sneered at him. And again, the Roman soldiers questioned capacity. They wonder how it is the king of the Jews, Jesus hanging on the cross, would be betrayed by his own. What kind of king is that that's, that's ridiculed and betrayed by his own people? And so it's from a particularly Roman lens, you know, that because they see the, the rulers or those in authority over them as wielding a form of absolute power. And so the Romans are really quoting Pilate's sign that they've put above Jesus' head, what king is killed by his own. Uh, they can only process what's happening through the lens of political power, rule above all. And, and then there's finally a third uh, uh, onlooker, third of four onlookers there, Um, and that is uh, the criminal who is there. So four different groups, the people, the rulers, the soldiers, and there's a criminal who's then using a third type of word, hurling abuse at Jesus, and we're going to talk more about him in a moment. But the key passageway here for us in this moment when we see all these different characters and groups witnessing the crucifixion is that Jesus's power in death is mysterious since it defies expectations. Now, Mystery here, or mysterious, doesn't mean that it's unknowable or some kind of enigma. That's not true. It means that the human expectations and assumptions about what's happening cloud it. It's a mystery because everything we think we know about what's going on is actually getting in the way of us actually seeing what's going on. Jesus is not part of some 
political game comprised of religious nationalism. Uh, It's popular in some Christian circles that say that Jesus was killed by empire. And to a certain degree, that's literally true. But that's not the totality of what's going on in this particular moment. You see, it's that very nationalism, both Jewish and Roman, is what actually kills Jesus in this sense. So our desire to align Jesus with us, with our causes, with our purposes, with what we want, what we seek, what we believe power to be, reveal us as hostile onlookers to the crucifixion. In that sense, we're very much just like the Roman soldiers. We're just like the rulers. We're just like the criminal next to Jesus that derided him. In these dangerous days in which we live, where Christianity is being co-opted for a new form of nationalism, sometimes called Christian nationalism, we must be completely clear as people of faith about what Jesus' death means. What dies that day with Jesus is more than just Jesus. What dies is every sin of humankind, including the sin of using his death for our own ends. And then finally, we turn to the other final two characters in the story who are crucified with Jesus. So we've talked about the modality of crucifixion. We've talked about those who were the onlookers. But there were two other onlookers. One is a criminal crucified to Jesus' left, another one crucified to his right. And only Luke includes this story and conversation in this way. Now, this story varies, though, from the other account with the men hanging next to Jesus, because we read those stories as them being antagonistic toward Jesus. Both people on either side are deriding him. In Luke's version of the story, only one is and the other is not. And the one criminal crucified to, uh, next to Jesus says this, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And his vision is very much like the leaders or the the rulers that were you know, uh, uh, criticizing Jesus, the Romans that were ridiculing. His vision is incredibly small. He acknowledges Christ. Are you not the Christ? A rhetorical question. But he still can't get out of his own way. Christ is still, Jesus is still a means to him. The Messiah is a means to him, not an end in and of itself. There's a powerful dynamic that reveals itself here in that the the criminal that's criticizing Jesus only perceives Jesus in a position that can provide gain for Jesus and for himself. He cannot realize the potential of Jesus' death beyond the moment he is in at that very moment. But the criminal on the other side of Jesus rebuked that one. And the statement that he says while he's crucified next to Jesus is important. So the first thing he states is this. Do you not fear God? So the criminal speaking to the other criminal. Do you not fear God? You see, their their crucifixion, these two criminals, is the result of not fearing human authority. And what the criminal is saying um, that's affirming Jesus' position is that Jesus... Being crucified is an an affront not to human authority, but to divine authority. And then he goes on to say to the other criminal, 
he says to him, since we are under the same sentence, in other words, we're all here for the same reason, he's making the point that they're suffering justly and experiencing the natural consequences of their actions, whereas Jesus is not. And then he looks at Jesus and says something remarkable. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What the person crucified next to Jesus is asking for is unnatural consequences for his actions. This criminal has an understanding of grace grounded in knowing Jesus. He believes that this remembrance of Jesus is something to experience in the future. So he's not trying to get out of the moment he's in. He actually has a vision beyond the moment he's in. So Jesus' response to him is uh, remarkable. Words of forgiveness. Jesus' final act before dying is to speak a word of salvation to this man. Remember, Jesus had been ridiculed by saying, uh, people were saying to him, he can save others, but he can't save himself. Isn't it interesting that Jesus' very last act is to save someone else before even himself? He promises that this man will be with him in paradise, and that word paradise is an old Persian word uh, for hidden place. It's commonly assumed in the scripture to be Eden, uh, or perhaps even a holding place. Uh, Jesus speaks of this in another parable where he uh, tells this parable about Lazarus and the rich man and how they both go to, uh, they both die, and one is in Abraham's bosom and the other is in hell. Abraham's bosom is another way of describing this paradise. It's a place where the dead, who have been judged worthy in this life, await going to heaven. Uh, There's a long uh, teaching about what paradise means in Abraham's bosom and kind of what's called the cosmology of the ancient Jewish world in terms of how they believed the, the world to exist. But Jesus assures this man, regardless of our understanding of paradise in Abraham's bosom, he assures them that he will be with him in paradise today, that the future will be realized. This opens the last key passageway for us. Submission to Jesus is complete and total surrender. You see, this man receives an unexpected and unworthy gift, life with Jesus. And this is the twist. Jesus dies a death he does not deserve, And the one who did deserve it receives life. And how easily we begin to lose this perspective as we reflect on the death and even resurrection of Jesus. Our functioning in our lives often leans too much toward entitlement. We expect that Jesus owes us something, that the love of God entitles us to something. No, it's a bit different from that. Jesus invites complete surrender from us. Why? Because the demonstration of the love of God in Jesus Christ is so infinite, so great. There's actually nothing we could give in payment. This is not a reciprocal relationship that God gives us one thing and then we give God another thing. We offer God our complete surrender because the gift God has given is so great. We don't offer ourselves out of a a sense of debt, but we offer ourselves out of something much more valuable, out of a sense of gratitude and thanksgiving. Because we know what we could give God could nothing, uh, could not even come close to the cost. So our only response is to live a life of thanksgiving and gratitude. And how much we need those things this day. Attitudes of thanksgiving and gratitude rather than the constant sense of feeling like we're owed or deserving of something.
If you have comments and reflections, I'd love to hear them. Please visit my website at revcraig.com. Click on News in the upper right corner, and then you'll see a drop-down menu where you'll see the word Podcast. Click on that. Then click on the specific episode and leave a comment. Also, I encourage you to visit our church's website at ffmc.org, firstfreemethodistchurch.org, to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. For now, I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.